welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with Tyler Cowan. Uh, I guess who needs no introduction. Tyler, how are you doing today? I am fine. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, so we're here to talk about your book, um, Talent, uh, with, along with Daniel Gross. Uh, first thing, you know, I, first thing I uh, wanted to ask you about was I saw in the book that um, one of the things that you uh, said was sort of an indicator of talent was how quickly people answer emails. Now, this is something that I noticed too. I noticed that when I re- reach out to people, you know, the people who tended, I think, to generally more successful people are people that I found to be competent later on to, to answer their emails quickly. Um, and the way I always thought about it, and you know, your your book made me reflect on it a little bit more, is that an email is sort of like a pop quiz in today in today's world. It's how much are you thinking about, and how much do you care about the thing you're working on in life, right? You can ask people how much do you care about, you know, your, your job, how passionate you are, but are you really checking your phone all the time? If somebody comes at you with comes to you with uh, an idea or some kind of opportunity, do you jump on it or do you sit on it for 24, 48 hours? Is that how you see a sort of a pop quiz going through life, or do you think there's something else going on with the email thing? I think there are several factors. One is that it's an indicator of the other person's assessment of goodness of match. So they might think they're totally above you, or maybe you're totally above them, or just you're not going to get along, and they answer your email two days later. They might be fine as a talent, but they're still signaling, well, you probably shouldn't work with them. People who are online a lot, people in journalism, public intellectuals, a lot of academics, I think it's an excellent measure of talent. But I would stress the point, there are some sectors where talent and speed of email response might be negatively correlated. So say someone uh, is a brain surgeon and they spend seven hours, you know, doing their most important operations. It could well be if they're always answering emails very promptly. It just means, well, there's never demand for them as brain surgeons and you ought to be a little wary. So I don't think it's a universal regularity, but it's a a pressing question to think about is a person's speed of response. Well, in our in our world, though, I mean, a brain surgeon, yes, I think you don't want your brain surgeon looking, uh, checking, you know, his email uh, in the middle of work or always being on the phone. But in our world where we're sort of always in front of screens, you know, I, I think it's it's probably a much better. Uh, I agree. Case, you think? But I think there's a lot of jobs like brain surgeon in some way where the boss may not even let the person be online or say someone is a chemist and in the lab all the time. Now, I don't know enough about chemists to judge this. But it wouldn't shock me if the correlation was negative between quality of chemist and speed of email response, that maybe what they should be doing is giving you know directions in the laboratory rather than reading something online. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I guess there's, there's a, d- a distinction between people who are, whose work involves, you know, manipulating symbols on, on computers and, and writing things. And then people who are, are sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of like a hands-on versus, you know, working with your brain sort of dichotomy of where, you know, the importance of you would emphasize the email issue, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, and so the other, I mean, the other thing, um, another thing in your book that I thought interesting was your discussion of intelligence. Now you, you seem to think it's, um, you know, I, I think a bit overrated. I mean, I, maybe like you, you think it's, I think it's underrated compared to say, you know, I don't know, like the, the politically correct way of talking about it. But I think you think it's overrated compared to most people who actually focus on IQ and intelligence. Is that an accurate assessment of your view? I would say that. I think it's overrated by people who end up reading the book and overrated by other smart people. I would say rather obviously it's underrated by society in general, right? 
Yeah, it's it's underrated. I mean, yeah, the fact that IQ is not considered, you know, something you could talk about in polite company, you know, would indicate that it, that if it matters at all, and it, it does clearly matter, um, then it's probably underrated. Um, what do you put the 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 way I look at sort of the intelli- uh, intelligence question is. I've always thought about it as something that if you have it, it can help sort of solve all other all other problems. Um, like, you know, I, I was pretty bad with social skills most of my life. I Because I, I was intelligent, I could reflect, I could read books, I could understand, you know, sort of where my problems came from, and then I could sort of work on them. So I've always thought intelligence was sort of work like that. Anything, you know, it, it helps with every other potential problem. So it's, it's potentially, it's not just that you could figure out, you know, how to do something in a moment. It just... It just increase if you find someone, you know, two workers equal one has a higher IQ. I would suspect the one with the higher IQ has sort of a higher ceiling on what can they can accomplish. Um, do you think that's right? I may be higher, but not as higher as people think. So here's what I do observe: if you take a class of people smart enough to say get a PhD or be an economist or you know be a reasonably competent programmer, uh, above that level of smarts. Smarts and achievement do not seem closely correlated to me much at all. Not negatively. I still think it would be vaguely positive, but just not very much. Now, you have to be smart enough, say, to get a degree in math or do whatever it is you're doing. But past that point, I would look at other features of the person's talent. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's right. I guess I guess it depends on what you're doing, right? Because there there is a there is a bare minimum here, but there's also a sense of, you know, there's also a... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, so do you think so? The CEO study from Sweden is very interesting, right? They had like, yeah. a, what didn't they, didn't they have like a standard deviation higher IQ than, than the average? You know, 83rd percentile at the yeah. median, which is smart, but not really yeah. that impressive, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what year was the study from? Do you remember? I don't remember, but it's recent. Now, before I did all the work for this book, I would have thought, well, a Swedish CEO. He'll be at the 96th percentile of intelligence. I think that's what I would have guessed Mm -hmm. as being the case, and not 83rd. So that, to me, is a revision. It's why I think a lot of smart people overrate IQ, because I used to overrate IQ. And there are many smart people. I've had to talk them down out of rating IQ, but there's never one that I've had to talk into it, I would say. Do you think that... um... So is, is it, could it be that, you know, I, I think that this result would not replicate in the United States. And why I think it would not replicate in the United States is because pedigree is imported. We, we care where people went to college and the colleges themselves are selecting based on standardized tests, right? So I think if you just took the um, average SAT of, say, Fortune C 500 CEOs, I would bet, you know, you would estimate, you can estimate an IQ of, I think it would be over the 83rd percentile or whatever. It was. I don't know what the Swedish system is like. I don't know if they're, um, they care as much about degrees. I don't know if their degrees themselves are based as much on, on standardized tests. But do you feel that we've sort of artificially created a world where maybe I, IQ matters? Or maybe maybe it's a good, maybe it's a good filtering mechanism. Maybe maybe we should have that system. But did you, do you give a feeling that, that I do that, that, that wouldn't probably replicate in the U.S.? I'm not sure the United States would be so different. And not everyone who goes to our top schools is so brilliant either, right? Yeah, that's true. But if you look at the average, so if you if you look at the average SAT for Harvard or something, right, it would indicate well into the 90th percentile, right? If you and most Ivy League schools would indicate that. Um, if you take SAT as a proxy for IQ, you would get. And I don't know if this is the. I don't. Maybe I just don't know. There's enough a lot of CEOs who didn't go to Ivy League schools. They're from the Midwest. 
They went to a, a good but not great undergraduate institution, and they're worth, you know, $350 million. Yeah. Never went to Harvard Yard. So I'm not sure. I'd love to see the study. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I'm, I'm I'm assuming from I've looked at politicians, for example. I've looked at like you know senators and and uh, even them. You you might get you might get a standard deviation over the mean. A lot of them went to law school, but I'll admit I don't know um, as much about the backgrounds of of CEOs. So maybe maybe it would. Uh, I think senators are quite smart, but in the House of Representatives, I don't think it would be very impressive. I've met plenty of them. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's part of it. Do you ever think about the our system? Because it's sort of so, um, you have these house races, right? And you have these Senate, you know, you have these, uh, you have the Senate and you get two from each state, right? And you get, and there's, I, there's, a, there's a brain drain from these areas, right? Do you, th- do you think it's something happening to do with our system? Because I've been thinking a lot about um, just, yeah, exactly, exactly that issue that a lot of, I don't know that probably as personal as you, but I found a lot of politicians to be unimpressive. I know there are some systems where the party puts a list and then people pick from lists. Well, all, ours is sort of more regionally distributed. So not all our politicians are going to be from, you know, the uh, high power brain areas of the country. Do you think it's, that's something unique to America or you think politicians in general are maybe not that impressive? I really think it depends on the country. I mean, Singapore, they're quite impressive, right? The Nordic countries, I think they're generally pretty smart. But I would make this point about senators. It's just a really fun job. Yeah. In a sense, not that much responsibility. So people who are very talented and could do a lot of different things, they might be attracted to being senators just because the reward is so high. And that may be one reason why they're relatively smart. Yeah. You're right. And so that might, it might not, it, it's a, uh, and you do get a lot of carpet bagging too. I guess that goes against what I was saying. A lot of people go to Harvard or Yale, they move to uh, a certain place and then they, uh, they become elected. The, uh, the, the Singapore, you bring up Singapore. I, you know, I have a theory and I wanted to maybe write this out, but I guess I'll, I'll run it by you first about the state capacity libertarian idea. It was sure. something that I think when you, when you first wrote about it, I think in early 2020 or 2021, was it? Um, I was sort of, I was a bit enamored with it. You know, I always thought there were some clear benefits to something like the Singapore model. Um, but then I saw the Western response to COVID and, you know, and some of the things that the fact that our state was so incompetent, I think made these, some of these restrictions that I, I think less, uh, less arduous than they would have been. So for example, some people would, would say, oh, you're, you're requiring masks, you're accepting cloths masks, at least make it N95. And I'm like, no, the N95 is, 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 ter- is a terrible device. I like the fact that I can have you know, a fake mask and at least comply with it. So in that case, I was sort of happy that <laughs> I was sort of happy that the gate state wasn't that good. And I, I guess one way, you know, one thing I think I thought about this state capacity libertarianism is I think when you combine two things in a movement, um, and one is politically popular or, and is the path of least resistance. And one is sort of unpopular. You get the thing that's easier to um, you get the thing that's easier to sort of enact and you don't get the other thing. So I think with state capacity libertarianism, I think you would probably get not if not state capacity, at least something that looks like state capacity. Like, let's say there was a movement that just said, you know, we're going to be the state capacity libertarian caucus in in congress i think they what they would do is they would find allies to do all the stuff that expands state power um find few allies um who would want to do libertarian or uh or or, um things that reduce the power of government and regulations and you'd end up just getting uh, a more and more intrusive government do you do you think about sort of the uh public choice public choice of that and how it would work out well i don't feel responsible for the defects of those imaginary people yeah, uh, I would say I think U.S. state capacity is higher than people now think. Uh, I'm very glad we had Operation Warp Speed. 
That was one of the highlights of our state capacity. And the gains to that were much higher than whatever losses we might have suffered from, say, different mask regulations having been too strict or would have been far too strict had state capacity been higher or however you want to create that counterfactual. It's just incredible that we had vaccines so quickly in Operation Warp Speed. And that's the main lesson. And you give our state capacity there like A to A plus. It could have even been quicker, of course. And the whole world has benefited. It saved millions of lives. So to me, that's the main lesson. And I agree we might sort of piss some of those gains away on other margins. I, I don't doubt that. But I want state capacity and libertarian in there. So if you only apply one, of course I'm unhappy. Was I've seen people bring up Operation Warp Speed as a success of um, you know our, our state capacity, but but it, you know I, I think of sort of the alternative. Wasn't you know Operation Warp Speed couldn't have been just seen as government does all these horrible things like it puts up too many barriers to drug production and and it just if it's just basically Operation Warp Speed. Besides putting in the orders, you know, it was just basically getting out of the way. It was cutting its own red tape, right? Um, so why not just paying up front? had a big effect on incentives. And, you know, my colleague Alex worked literally for Operation Warp Speed. You could speak to him. He could address it in more detail. But the people who've been involved, who are not in general like just a big bunch of government levers, typically think it was quite effective. Yeah, yeah. But the, so you have the, um, I, well, another thing the government, because I mean, if you think if you just if you don't have the state capacity libertarian, let's just say you have a you know you have a state capacity libertarian solution versus just a libertarian solution. So the libertarian solution would have said, for example, you know no 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 FDA no FDA uh, at all, um, no FDA doing anything. Sell whatever you want and make whatever profit you want. You know I think the order the the fact that the government uh, it was a second best option. The fact the government said you know we'll commit to all these pre orders. I think if you let people just pay for whatever they wanted because government i think also negotiated to make sure that they wouldn't profit too much off of the vaccines so i think if you could have said make anything you want um uh, uh charge whatever you want could potentially have been better i mean i think i think the, the i guess the question is is in this, even in this case where state capacity libertarian looks good is would you perhaps just plain old libertarianism you know still have been uh, the better solution and what's good about the uh what's good about the operation works read is libertarian stuff and then the state capacity stuff is sort of second best stuff that a non-libertarian government wouldn't allow uh wouldn't allow to happen i have more sympathies for the libertarian solution than most people would but i think in this case it's not time consistent so one issue is simply how do you deal with legal liability now the fda process for all of its flaws does give manufacturers the ability to bring the thing to market in a way consistent with corporate law and their other fiduciary responsibilities. So no FDA means everything is fair game in the court system. And that is much worse even than the FDA. It's a bigger constraint. But also, uh, government won't let them keep the prices high. Governments confiscate resources ex post. <clears throat> and we know that, so you need to reward them up front even if in principle you think the higher price would be a better incentive. But I would also point out when there's an externality through contagion, you don't want the price of a vaccine to be very high. By the way, forgive my <clears throat> throat clearing. It's having come back from India and still suffering from air pollution there, speaking of externalities, but I'm fine. <laughs> well, yeah, we're, we're glad. Are, do, they, uh, do they have you quarantine or take tests or anything at this point? No, nothing. Uh, and I didn't get COVID there. I had great fun. I was there over two weeks, went to an Emergent Ventures India meetup event, went all around, saw the Sikh Golden Temple, 
Now I'm back home. No problems other than the air pollution. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I went to the Emerge Adventures conference, I met, yeah, I met some people with India. I saw recently you wrote that it has, you know, probably the highest um, uh, numbers of people who are untapped unta- potential uh, in the world. And I've, you know, I've noticed a lot of people sort of, you know, read my things are, are uh, from Indian descent or there are a few from, from India, uh, Twitter, you know, I've, I've met people, like I said, at the Emerge Adventure conference. Uh, and, you know, India is one of the, you know, giants of the world. The other is uh, China. Um, and do you, th- you know, what do you, you know, what, what is, do you, how do you think about sort of the differences between India and China here? Because I, I, I didn't meet any, I don't think I met anyone from China at the Emerge Adventures. I've never met anyone from China who reads my articles. I've met a lot of people uh, from India. Is it just a language thing? Is it language plus the system? Is, are there, are there, you know, cultural population differences and sort of openness to outsiders? What, why does India seem to have a pre- presence in sort of our world while China really doesn't? I think it's language plus culture. So if you ask, like, who are the two most influential economists of the last 20 years? Now, you could debate that. But if someone said it's Raj Chetty and then Abhijit Banerjee for RCTs, that's a totally plausible answer, right? They're both ethnically Indian. If someone asks you, well, who's going to run for president in the next election? Like, I wouldn't bet that it's Harris versus Nikki Haley, but it's a totally plausible thing that could happen. And they're both, you know, Indian origin in Harris's case, only half. But still, China has nothing like that. The list of Indian CEOs. And America is a country that home breeds a lot of great CEOs, right? We're not like some lame-ass country that doesn't have a CEO and we've got to import them all. And Indians have done remarkably well. So there's something more synthetic, I think, about India culturally that allows them to slot into a bunch of roles. If you look, say, at biomedicine, I think you will find Chinese are often doing as well as Indians. It's more of a, maybe narrow isn't the word, but more of a directly applied, internally consistent, doesn't connect to the outside world very much sort of endeavor, like the drug works or it doesn't. But the more synthetic the task, politics, CEO, economist, I think for cultural reasons, you'll find Indians are more prominent. Yeah. And the Nikki Haley, uh, uh, and the Nikki Haley, um, uh, Kamala Harris example is interesting because these are both um, American. I think I'm pretty sure Nikki Haley was American born. I know, yes. I know Kamala Harris was. Um, and you have a lot of native born Chinese and you just see massive underrepresentation of politics. So you both have these uh, people from China, you know, not being sort of represented in the world. You also have people for, uh, from Chinese and East Asian descent, generally un- unrepresented in our, um, at the highest levels of, of our politics, especially for their, you know, socioeconomic status. So there's a, uh, you know, there's something there's something very very interesting there. Have you thought of? Do you think Chinese were doing well? If you look at like the teams, U.S. sends to the map. Oh yes, yeah. It's, uh, I'm I'm not sure they're all Chinese, but just visually, you have the sense there's a high proportion of Chinese on those teams. Oh yeah, oh yeah. From, from from looking at them, you can't tell the U.S. and the Chinese team apart on these uh, math math Olympiads. Um, they yeah, they look they look the same. I think they're pretty much all Chinese. Maybe there might be uh, a Korean or two in there. So that, they could do math. I mean, I don't think anyone is <laughs> I don't think anyone is doubting that Chinese could do math and uh, engineering. But there, you know, there's something about um, you know creativity, you know, leadership, you know, CEO, uh, just being sort of entrepreneurial with I- ideas that is. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe world, maybe the world cell versus, uh, uh, shape rotators here is the, uh, uh, you know, is the apt sort of, d- uh, description. I'm not sure that though. I, I mean, I'm never happy with that distinction. Uh, it seems to me, uh, sort of r- 
raw startup entrepreneurship is not exactly India's cultural strength. But again, this idea of synthetic forms of knowledge, where you need many different skills and the ability to combine them, uh, CEOs and politics, seems to be where they excel. And if you think of Banerjee or Chetty in economics, they're both very synthetic thinkers. They bring together a lot of different kinds of insights. They've mastered different sorts of techniques or, or ways of doing economics. Uh, I don't know if any of it comes from Hinduism. I fully recognize by no means are all Indians Hindu, but it's a strong background cultural influence in, in all of India. And it is a very synthetic way theologically of thinking about the world. Yeah. Synth- synthetic. I mean, that's, 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 that's an interesting word. I mean, is, is it, is, is that, how do you differentiate that between say creativity? Say some people are more because creativity involves what taking a bunch of sources and making not going down some kind of you know clear path, but taking a bunch of sources and trying to make something new. Creativity obviously can be synthetic, but there's a lot of forms of creativity that are relatively small number of dimensions. You just have like some brilliant insight about, oh, this is the new thing to do in a heavy metal tune, and you do it. Yeah. The okay. India seems to have this historical record of being very good at incorporating other cultures without losing being Indian. And that seems, in a globalized world, that's a much more important strength than it would have been 30 or 40 years ago. And I th- it seems to me it's helped India and Indians a great deal. Yeah. Indians do well in Canada. At least the cities have become highly synthetic environments, right? A lot of other cultures coming together. You're dealing with different influences, problems you know, coming at you all the time, if you say live in Toronto. And again, that's not what Toronto was like 40 years ago. Mm. Yeah, right. The, um, uh, yeah, th- that's, that's interesting. And do you, do you I think I listened to you, I think you were talking to Russ Roberts, um, where you talked about Germany and Germany sort of punching, you know, uh, under, under its, under its weight. Um, do you, do you think that these, um, do you, do you see Europe as sort of, um, do you see Europe on the decline? I mean, because I, I, my my impression is you're optimistic about the U.S., optimistic about uh, India. I think you're you're. I don't know how you feel about China's. You know, I think you're pessimistic about their sort of role in the world. But I don't know if you're sort of bullish or bearish on their uh, you know potential to keep growing. Um, and I, I get that sense that you're you're more pessimistic on, on Europe. Is is that right? Well, I would disaggregate Europe. So England, to me, South England is its own thing. But I'm very optimistic there. I'm very optimistic about Ireland, which now is more likely to be called Europe because it's in the EU, but I don't actually think of it as like the continent, but they have the English language, a great time zone. Uh, I think wonderful things will happen there. Paris and Rome and Switzerland, I'm very optimistic about. I think they will be amongst the world's best places, more or less indefinitely, attract the relevant talent from their home countries. Tourists will love those places for totally justifiable reasons. They won't just be museum pieces either. Uh, but that said, Europe as a whole, I think will grow like percentage point or percentage point and a quarter a year. That's okay. They'll still have remarkable human capital and cultural heritage, but I'm not excited about yeah. how most of the continent will do. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if that makes me pessimistic though. That's kind <laughs> of what we've all expected, right? Yeah. Well, Europe will, I mean, it's Europe will. Great. How good the best places on the continent already are and are going to be. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's sort of a, for somebody who with a sort of, uh, uh, 
you know, you want to you want to see sort of dynamism and progress. To say these, you know, Paris and Rome will be great tourist attractions, and the people there will maintain their standards of living. It's it's optimistic from one point of view. You know, it'll be it'll be won't be the worst thing in the world to be born in, in Paris or Rome. Um, at the but same no, time, okay. so- like when I go to Paris, I have great conversations every day, insofar as I want to. So it's not just oh, look at the Eiffel Tower. You know, Monet was a great painter way back when. They're dynamic places, and they're intellectually alive. I mean, Ulbeck, where, where is he from? I don't know where he was born, but he's really coming out of Paris as a milieu. Yeah. And there was the, the there have incredible levels of personal taste, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the and and for the and for the U.S., you know the the I think the mood. I mean, I think the mode, and maybe this is just being on on Twitter. It seems you know very pessimistic. I mean, I think you've brought up some good uh, you know points that you know this would be reflected. It's sort of the market. Um, people would be shorting you know all kinds of things if the U.S. Uh, really was um, uh, you know over the long run was going to be was going to be in bad shape. You know, people say things like, oh, civil war, we're going to have you know uh, violence. You know, I never I never bought it. Uh, into any of that. Um, what do you think is sort of the difference here? But I think what people think, I, I think what people think, they don't look at like demographic things. They don't say, oh, Americans' birth rate is that low or, you know, they don't look at anything like that. I think there's just a sort of a, a, set, a vibe from our politics. Um, yeah, they dislike that, each other. I think we live in a kind of age arrangement. But that can be positively correlated with creativity. I'm increasingly reminded of, uh, you know, the English 17th century where people got quite deranged about each other. And it even got violent, right? That was bad. But it's the beginnings of modern economic growth, like the 1640s, and ultimately the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, with... um with January, you know, with January 6th, with these uh, sort of political, you know, cleavages... Um, the, you know, people, you know, the idea is that this can, this could potentially, um, you know, translate into something that hurts our standard of living, um, you know, that hurts our economic uh, growth. Um, and you say you, you say you are worried about that uh, to a certain extent. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I bring this up not because I'm, you know, I have these worries. I'm not pushing it for that reason. I actually, I think these worries are uh, generally overrated. But like, what would you head? Okay, let's say let's let's put this. Let's put, let's talk at probabilities. Um, so the U.S. has some kind of you know a big constitutional breakdown, say in the next 10, 20 years. Uh, what would you put that at? Uh, rather than the word breakdown, I would use the word crisis. The chance of a major constitutional crisis to me seems a bit over ten percent, mm-hmm. and that's comfortably high. And it was not nearly that high, you know, five years ago, ten years ago. So a breakdown, I would think, is a much, much lower chance. Yeah. You can see it possibly coming. And I think we all should be worried. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So like a breakdown would be like, you know, the Republicans and Democrats have militias in the streets that are fighting each other. And like the crisis would be the Supreme Court rules X um, and the president says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do Y. Like not not right. some kind of Weasley. Well, they always do this. There's always a Weasley legal thing. Like, oh, I'm actually complying, but you know, they're really not complying. It would be more. It would have to be sort of more substantive than that, right? Um, At least and- one branch of the government not following the Constitution. That seems to me to have popped up on the radar screen uh, as way too high a probability. Yeah, or or you could imagine, or the not just within the branches of the government, you could imagine the states, the states versus right. the federal federal government. But yeah, I mean, the I could, yeah, my my reading of sort of American history, at least, especially the last like you know since the war in court, since the last you know uh, sixty years or so, is that 
you know, they're, they're really not following the law all the time. And they yes. never, they never say we're not following the law. They just say, you know, I have the true interpretation of the law and someone says something else. And it's hard to see how we uh, go from that. To some Like somebody would have to have the political uh, incentive to say, I'm ignoring the Supreme Court or I'm not following the law or we're not going right. to listen to the president, which is not impossible to imagine. You can imagine a Republican state not wanting to uh, do what Biden says or or, or something uh, something like that. Yeah, but the most likely scenario, I think, is I, I think I think you're right. And even if that happens, even if that 10 percent chance happens, that wouldn't necessarily you know hurt our economic growth or hurt our living standards. Right. It could be just something people worry about and then sort of, you know, we settle it and, and we move on. So I, I think, I think you're right. Do you, do you, do you worry about the American sort of, so, you know, it, you know, there's a question of whether these things will lead to some kind of real societal, you know, breakdown or, you know, cleavage or something that can be measured in say GDP or, or uh, rates of violence or whatever. But there's also, you know, this stuff also has sort of a psychic cost. Do you worry about sort of like the, you know, the, the uh, mental health of Americans and sort of, you know, sp- uh, spiritually and creative wise, you know, what it can do to our culture, because I, it, there has to be a distortive effect could be better. Like you said, you can have these tensions and you could have these, you know, different states and different regions and different subcultures and you know, something could flourish out of that. Um, but it also could become, it just could lead to a, to a sort of a environment of sort of, you know, pessimism and, and negativity. And that that's the sort of the flip side, the danger of that. Uh, don't you think? I think there's a lot of evidence for in a mental health crisis already. Now, the parts of it you sort of read about in the New York Times are the mental health crises of intellectuals and media types, which are somewhat their own fault and overblown. But the actual mental health crisis relating from opioids and COVID issues and lockdowns and schools being shut down and people driving 100 miles an hour and so on, those are very real. And a lot of those numbers even predate COVID. COVID accelerated and exposed much of what's happened. But that could be the number one issue of our time in America, is the mental health crisis. Just look at the percentage of young people taking antidepressants, or people who go to therapy, which I'm not at all opposed, but the percentage of super successful, like 32-year-olds I meet, who proudly announce they've been in therapy 10 years and don't even think that's weird. Like any one of them, it might be the correct thing to do. But the percentage I see of that seems to me like crazy wrong and too high for what you would expect. And I think that's a mental health crisis. I don't know where it came from. I worry about it. As a as an economist, do you think about sort of the incentives of insurance and the sort of the trend towards um, you know treating mental health as sort of a physical health? So somebody's you know third party is paying for it. It's the same problem with overconsumption of medical um, uh, services more generally. But here there's a sort of a um, is a bigger problem, right? Because how much you need is sort of it's by definition in your head. Um, so it's not you know the <laughs> being always a psychiatrist is sort of different than you know getting an extra uh, uh, you know heart examiner or something like that. I don't know if there's overconsumption of the service, and I'm also not sure how much therapy helps people. I'm not sure how much antidepressants help people. And I have read in all these areas. I'm just not sure what the answers are. But I'm pretty sure there's just too much of the malady of mental health problems. Yeah. And I guess what I'm a version of it in our intellectuals who have just become so negative about each other. I'm sure you see it on Twitter every day. Yeah. Uh, Again, to me, that's the least worrisome part of it. But a lot of people I've known have just flipped out about politics. And uh, again, I might even agree with most or maybe even all of what they say, 
but it seems to me, perspectively, they're so off. I consider them, I wouldn't say like ideological opponents, but I feel like very distant from them. Even mm-hmm. when I might agree, like, well, January 6th, that was terrible. The people committed treason, the this, the that. You know, the FBI was, was fine to come in and take the materials. But at the end of the day, I don't feel I'm living in the same universe as a lot of those people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, some of the polit- political stuff is very weird. So if you if you propose some kind of regulation that on um, trans issues, for example, goes back to what we had in 2010, I mean, the reaction will be fascism. You know, this is going to lead to people dying. I mean, it is so disproportionate to sort of objectively what's what's going on. I wonder, and I wonder what you know. I, I tend to think that you know, it's such a um, uh, I'm previewing another uh, uh, something else. I think I might want to write about. So, if you look at, for example, the 1990s, um, and you have the Oklahoma City bombing, um, you have the bombings of abortion clinics, um, you have Ruby Ridge, you have Waco. I mean, a serious body counts. Sure, all these I lived things. through all this. And you can imagine, um, imagine if this stuff was happening today, people would say, we, you know, it just like we just saw it on the news. I, you know, I'm just old enough to remember this. And, you know, we, we saw it on the news and we sort of, we sort of moved on. And it's the level of violence, you know, political violence at the time was, you know, much higher than it is today. There, there aren't a lot of these incidents today. And yet the sort of the, the pessimism and to worry about our politics is just off the charts. And, and I just have to think it's social media and the internet. It's just created, we, you know, the news always had a negativity bias. But I think the negativity bias has just been so extreme that like, it's like, no matter how good things get, we're going to be extremely pessimistic about America for the rest of our lives. And that itself is, is sort of depressing. Some of it may well be social media as an amplifier, but I saw comparable trends on cable TV before social media was much of a thing. So I wonder if the greater interest in social media is not itself an endogenous part of the process. There's plenty of earlier periods of historical time, maybe on average half of them, where just the social mood is getting worse. And there are particular reasons, but maybe the most general theory is that half the time in history, you're approaching a period of greater derangement. And that might be a more important point than the particular culprits. Like there are social contagion effects with all communications media, but maybe they're not actually as causal as they seem. They're just right in front of our eyes all the time. The Mm. 17th century in England, that being so deranged, was that social media? Well, they had all these like pamphlets at the pubs and the alehouses, like maybe it was, but still that seems to miss the point a bit as well. Yeah. So you're, 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 I think saying that there's a sort of dynamic and it moves in one direction or not and it might be the technology might push us in one reason one direction or other but you know you could imagine a sort of a alternative history where social media was never invented or never took off and we still might be just going in that that direction for for whatever reason is is that what you're saying yes so it's like email can carry certain kinds of messages you can blame the email but at the end of the day you know maybe the messages get carried anyway i it just seems to me it's prematurely judged far too often. It's a kind of, people see it right in front of their faces, bias, like, oh, I hate that bastard on Twitter. Like, it's pissing me off. It must be social media. It's a very crude form of inference, not befitting of real academics, I would say. Mm. They need to be more detached. And certainly there could be something to what they're saying. I, I don't dismiss it. But people leap at that explanation so quickly. And I think that is itself part of the derangement.
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, just the way social media has you, though, you know, has you. You see this the most in Jonathan Eight, right? Uh, what do you mean? Well, his take on social media—it's far too negative, and it's way more negative than the evidence itself uh, justifies, in my opinion. Yeah, and he's this weird mix of someone who's such a huge defender of free speech, but when free speech comes on social media, all yeah. of a sudden it's ruining the world. And yeah. I don't really get how he squares all those views. Yeah. Not logically impossible, uh, but it's not an easy or comfortable fit either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my experience, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I sort of, my experience leads me to think of the, it seems the media. To me, social media are probably bad for 12 to 14-year-old girls and mm-hmm. probably good for most of the rest of us. That would yeah. be like my most intuitive answer, but very subject to revision. So... I think it's good. I mean, I think it's good for me. But they're bad for a lot of academics. I guess they get classified in. Yeah, they might be. They might be at the. uh, They get lumped in with the twelve to fourteen year old. (laughs) There there might be a similarity there. Yeah, there might be. They have something in common. (laughs) I think that's right. But the thing about the difference is that the academics and the journalists, I would put them in the same category, sort of are the lens through which we see, you know, everything else. Yeah, yeah, of course. And and so this is, uh, yeah, this could this could potentially be a problem. I don't think that the average person, you know, working, you know, as a manager at at Walmart is is necessarily driven crazy by social media, although although some might is just that everything they consume is produced by the kinds of people um, who tend who do tend to be uh, who t- do tend to be driven crazy by social media and and that might, that might be a problem I mean we'll I guess we'll we'll see this is a testable hypothesis right either the the pessimism will stay with us for the, over the next decades or you know we'll we'll see if it's possible to have a world where everyone is on Twitter and everyone is holding hands and, and loving each other if we can get back to like the 19, 1990s level of cultural optimism um, with Twitter still ha- still having the role, and maybe it's endogenous too. Like maybe people stop using Twitter. Just even if people stop using Twitter, I would say that 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 still that still works with your sort of uh, uh, cyclical theory of these things because we're not slaves of the technology. I think that's the argument that people make. That sort of is a deterministic thing, and whether the technology is compatible with a um, with a more optimistic sort of cultural worldview, or we can choose to get rid of it maybe we choose for whatever is a pneumatic uh, uh social contagion reasons we stop we stop using it um that would be indicate you know we're, we're sort of more free we have we have options here right in my view the chance of returning to optimism is pretty low i, th- I call it greater weirdness i just think we're going to see greater weirdness and that i suppose i think would happen with or without social media if you just look at it what a 25 year period no i don't think they're the same so the weirdness is all kinds of bubbles of funny kinds of optimism. So just like more people believing in UFOs, it's not pessimism per se, like it might be, oh, they're all going to kill us, but it's mainly weirdness. And if you have a 25-year period where you have 9-11, the financial crisis, COVID, a bunch of other bad events, war in Ukraine, you're going to have more weirdness. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess that's that, that, that's right. That nine eleven, I think, was a sort of a an important sort of factor, and unquestionably, in breaking that uh, uh, breaking that sort of nineteen nineties level level optimism. I think we were, I think, society was pretty pretty self aware uh, about that. Um, let me go. Let me go back to the um, the book. I, I, you know, I, it was interesting reading about the emergent ventures procedure because I'm, you know, myself. CSPI is an emergent uh, venture uh, grant winner, so it was, it was interesting sort of reading your philosophy and the, the thought process behind that. Um, and then you mentioned in the book, and this is a question that that threw me off at the when when I got it. You ask, uh, how ambitious are you? 
Um, can you talk about sort of the, the, the benefits of that question? Because I think it's very interesting. It's not something you know, I'd heard before, so it took me by surprise. So can you, can you sort of uh, explain why, why, why you asked that? That's a question I like to ask leaders and potential leaders. It's not actually a good question for most people. Mm. I mean, in the extreme, if you're interviewing a Starbucks cashier, how ambitious are you, right? That's crazy. If anything, you want them not to be too ambitious so they don't get bored. Uh, but people who are not very ambitious, I've just found, empirically, cannot fake a good answer to that question. And yeah. you're not even assessing if they just say yes. Some ambitious people will kind of say no, but they'll lay out their plans with such detail and enthusiasm, you get the sense they're quite ambitious indeed. So don't take them too literally, but gauge how, how well they seem to have thought through and felt through uh, what they want to do. And I think it's one of the best questions for prospective leaders of institutions. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember? I've that? asked this. I don't look. I was interviewing an academic not too long ago, and I said, how ambitious are you? And the answer was, I want to publish a bunch of papers and get tenure. Mm. Totally honest. I admired the person, but it's like, come on. <laughs> like, at that point, for me, the interview is over. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you that re is what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you remember how I answered that question? No, I do not. <clears throat> how, okay. What did you say? Uh, I don't remember exactly. I remember how I felt and how I tried to sort of gauge the answer. I don't remember the exact thing that I said, but I remember say I remember thinking to myself, if I give an honest answer, I'm going to look maybe maybe crazy, maybe a little bit too ambitious. I mean, I think if I answered it completely honestly, I would have said, I want to be in a hundred years. I want people to say Richard Hanania was the greatest thinker of the early 21st century, and society was going this one way, and then he came along, and now we're still reading him and studying him because he's so smart and interesting. What if I would have said that? Would that would that have been a good answer? What you said? This is this, this is a, this is a, this is too much. This is a little bit crazy. No, that would have been fine, and probably. I mean, my guess is. Whatever you said, I read as you saying that. So in a yeah. sense, you did say that. <laughs> I tried not to. That, that's all I remember, that I was trying not to say that. But I was Trying not to say it is in a way how you say it, right? So that's part of the point of the question. It's very hard to not tell the truth, no matter what the literal words you know, might be expressing. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. people who have no ambition, they can't even like fake holding in their true ambition. They don't even know how to do that. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I want to publish a bunch of papers and get tenure. Eject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah, in academia, sort of, do you think this is this is you talked about the feminization of social life, feminization of of academia? Uh, you know, I, I, re yeah, I remember like writing papers or having ideas. And, and feedback I'd often get would be, you know, it's it's too ambitious, it's trying to explain too much, it's trying to do too much. And I've always thought that there it, it's just the the sort of there was such a cultural bias against that. And, you know, it's fine to, you know, be on the lookout for research that's too ambitious and, you know, doesn't have good methodology for, for answering the question that it wants to uh, answer. But if, if, if that concern leads you to not ask important questions at all, and I think that's sort of where academia is, then, you know, what's the whole point of the enterprise? Do, do you see academia sort of, you know, I think you probably do overly risk averse, but is, is, that, yeah. is that something, is that how you would think about it? I would like to see people be more intellectually ambitious. They are in some ways more ambitious than ever before, like how much money they earn or how good a school they get tenure at. There's a whole bunch of dimensions where ambition is way higher than 20 or 30 years ago. And I was definitely around in those days. I remember it quite well. 
but intellectual ambition, ambition of curiosity, ambition of influence, uh, seems to me they're all down a lot. Yeah. And do you, do you think there's, um, I think this this sort of, uh, I was, I was a little bit surprised by your, um, your chapter on, uh, uh, the, uh, the, it was about, um, talented, uh, women and, and minorities, um, because you've talked about, you know, the sort of the feminization of academia. I know you don't think it's all bad. I, I don't think anyone could say it's all bad. It's obviously, uh, changed, changed things a, a lot, but there's, there's sort of a, it is an open empirical question, whether we've gone too far in accommodating, um, you know, making women comfortable in academia and other professional settings, or we haven't gone far enough. And I think the, the, the tone of the chapter was, we haven't gone far enough. And could, sure. is, that, is that how you see it? And can you, can you defend that? Well, if, you, if it's academia, one thing we could do is change the current system of tenure clocks. I don't think women are the main reason to do that. I think there's plenty of other reasons to reform tenure. But the way the tenure clock falls now, it's exactly running against when most women tend to want to have children. And that's another reason to do it. So, I mean, look at Catalin Carrico with mRNA vaccines. That's incredible. That's feminization. I'm a big advocate of it. It mobilizes much, much more talent. But that said, we're in this funny in-between world where things are feminized and they're not, and the rules are unclear, and uh, it's not all working that well. But there's no reversing the feminization, right? It's like figuring out how to make it work better. Yeah. uh, I think we should do that. Yeah. So the, the tenure clock, I mean, I think there's all kinds of good reasons to sort of, um, you know, I, th- I think the I think the time period is sort of just the just the way we think about time in academia. I think we we think that people live to be two hundred. I mean, for for a man to get a PhD postdoc, not start his career until his his mid thirties, I think is also sort of it's it's not it's not good with male bio the male biological sure. clock either. Men at some point have to become adults and self supporting and have and have children too. Um, so maybe it's worse for women. But I, I think you know this this to be is in the category of of things that's just you know there there's there's uh it's the the reason to do it's sort of overdetermined you know there's there's a lot of reasons to, to make everything sort of shorter and compress it um but then but then you think about sort of just like you know the way we talk I, i'll you know i'll go back to my own experience of academia again it's very it's considered sort of um rude or sort of gosh I, if i was in a seminar and, and economics is famous for being not not as much like this as say political science but in political science if somebody just has an idea and you say i think that's wrong it's wrong because of you know x y and z that's a bad variable that's a bad data set um you're that that i think people people would consider you sort of sort of mean um that was that was my impression you couldn't directly challenge people I, and i think I, I do see that as sort of feminization i i see sort of what i hear complaints about economics um, and, you know, coming out of political science, I'm like, oh, wow, that economics sounds more like, you know, what I wish political science was. I attended some, you know, workshops, law and economics at the University of Chicago. So I got uh, a little bit of a sense of this. But I, I think that, you know, I think that in particular, you know, too much agreeableness, I think is just poison for the search of, for the search for truth. And if you want to categorize that as feminization versus not feminization, many men are going to be, you know, uncomfortable with that. Sure. I just think that's something we need to get. We just have to normalize saying a is correct. B is wrong. This methodology is good. This methodology is bad. These people are right. These people uh, are wrong. And I, I just don't think we do enough of that. I think I agree with that, but I would stress the point. We're going to need a feminized version of acceptably publicly voiced disagreement. We can't go back to how things were. And there are many feminizations. Women disagree with each other publicly all the time. 
I don't think you can say there's no way to have feminized open disagreement. Uh, the new thing we should evolve toward to understand how to make it good and sustainable, we need to understand it will be some kind of partially feminized version of disagreement. Yeah. Although, I mean, how much, you know, how it, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's how much feminization we want depends on, um, depends on, you know, the rules that we set, how welcoming they're going to be. So it's not like there's a set number of women who are going to be in academia or who are going to be in, uh, you know, political leadership roles. So, so the, you know, the choices we can make about these things um, also sort of influence how much we have to uh, accommodate. It's just, it's just, it's very hard. I mean, it, it is very difficult to you know, it's very difficult to, like, I'm trying to imagine what would this feminized version of um, disagreement, um, you know, would look like in sort of an academic setting. And I think the, the point is, I mean, I think the point is sort of this, these feminized sort of ways of communicating are, you know, by their nature designed to take into account of feelings more than objective rights. So just to have like a crude, you know, just a crude sort of, you know, stereotype of men are like this, women are like this, you know, men sit there, you know, they, they go, they fix a car, you know, they, they, they're, they're focused on the thing. They don't stop in the middle of it and say, how are you feeling? You know, they're trying to find the right answer. And if you think you imagine like a feminized way of doing this, it's sort you know, a feminized way of going about solving a problem. It seems like femininity itself, you know, as a way of communication style is, um, sort of like by definition geared towards taking in account of feelings, um, putting less emphasis on truth. Um, and maybe, you know, that contrast, I don't agree with men have their own ways as they go along of asking, well, is this okay? What are your feelings? They just don't recognize them as such. And women have their own ways of caring about truth more than men do. Uh, men don't always see it as such. And in my view, feminization uh, cannot be reversed, should not be reversed. We need more female talent in, in most, maybe all of the sciences. And we probably will figure out a better way of making things work than what we have now. Uh, but I don't think that's the main difference between men and women. Uh, yeah. I don't think women care, say, less about scientific truth than men do. Hmm. Men yeah. are like the grand system builders on average who make up all, all the bullshit, right? Yeah. Like how much of that stuff is true? <laughs> yeah. Well, women it's... are doing... Like if you're going to generalize, women are doing healthcare economics, and most of it's correct. Mm. So who cares about truth more? Uh, well, you, you picked you you picked one you picked one you picked one field you picked. Uh, oh, I know. Um, I'm just saying there's a lot of different ways. <laughs> I could find slice, examples. Of, yeah, slice the bread here. <laughs> right. Is it is it hard to sort of is is the difficulty here? Like you can have this you know women's division of and you can have this men's division. Is it hard to bring them? Is it hard to bring them together in, in one institution? Is that is that is that part of the the challenge here? Um, and that like you know it's like it's sort of like bringing two cultures together, right? But they're but they're more separate. Men and women are more different than you know uh, most you know. Uh, various cultures i mean you bring people from uh you know different countries here to the u.s you bring people from china to india um you know africa it doesn't seem like you know there's a big you know difference in how say men of Amer of american background versus these foreign men it doesn't seem to be causing serious you know disputes on college campuses is it is it just sort of isn't it just seen as like can we just see it maybe as an extreme culture class and maybe maybe the answer here is um some kind of you know educational or uh labor market segregation where you can have these men things and you can have these women things and then you avoid the difficulties of like some things making some people uncomfortable and not others i think the gains to integration are very very high and we will become much better at it but if you look at say scientific research teams vaccine teams like who who succeeded with the vaccines bunch of teams full of women 
Novavax was like some incredible ratio of women to men. I forget the numbers. So, you know, we're going to make it work. We're already making it work. We do have to get a lot better at it. Yeah, but that 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 sounds like labor market just a kind of labor market segregation. So the you know you have the, the biology women organically chose biology more than physics or STEM, and if you know if the if the teams end up being seventy or eighty percent women, you know, great. I, I you know I don't I don't mind that, but it, you know, and then you look at these you know software startup builders, and you know they're they're all men, and maybe we need a level of comfort with this idea that this, these spaces will be all women, these spaces will be men. Some of them will be integrated perfectly fifty fifty. I don't know how many market. Uh, I don't know how many market. I don't know how many markets end up like that. Just because it seems to me that institutions and you know uh, 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 sort of fields of study uh, they 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 tend to draw one or the other, and then you you sort of have this um, cycle where they build one kind of culture and not another. Um, so I'm not you know I'm not asking for, I'm not arguing for uh, uh, you know the state enforced you know gender segregation of the labor market. I think you you get it sort of organically, um, and maybe you know we should just we should just be okay with that. I guess is what I'm asking. If the top chess tournaments are all men, which, as you know, is the case, doesn't bother me at all. But just predictively, I expect the big advances to be made by closely integrated teams, integrated in multiple ways. But here I'm meaning gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the mRNA teams, uh, I don't know the exact numerical, but it's a lot of men and a lot of women. It's not like 80-20. Novavax was unusual that it was so many women you know, in the, in the Maryland facility. Um, man, that's great. Yeah. And what about, and what about the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the other part of that, um, chapter on, on women and minorities. Do you, do you think that, do you, are you, are you under the impression that the, you know, these, you know, cause my impression is that, yeah, I mean, it could be, it could be true that, you know, some, uh, you know, somebody of a black or Hispanic descent, you know, they might, you know, they might have different cultural norms than people of white descent. I think there's major differences between whites of different, you know, socioeconomic classes and regions, um, and, and ethnicities. Um, is, is this something that, you know, is this something that is, um, I guess I'm seeing it in the context of like we, we worry about it. We make it such a big deal in our in our culture. Is, is it is it a good is it a good idea when we, when we're rating something as a problem as like a nine and it's really a four? I mean, don't isn't isn't the isn't the um, you know isn't it reasonable to think that maybe we should be sort of just saying you know things things are working out fine and we're not re- this is not really as big of a problem as most people think. I'm not sure how much of a problem most people think it is. Uh, maybe. <clears throat> One big subset of media overrates it as a problem, but I don't think the country as a whole does. I think the country as a whole probably underrates it as a problem. I mean, I'm just struck by data on, say, African-Americans who seem to experience much higher levels of stress than would like what you might call normal white guys. And that, to me, is a serious problem. I suspect the country as a whole underrates it. But if you want to tell me, well, the New York Times overrates it, I'd want to see what they said. But like that could certainly be true. It wouldn't shock me if that were true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think that the sort of the, the way people feel is sort of shaped by the New York Times and how we talk about it. So I don't know if you've seen data that's been sort of floating around that if you ask black people how big of a race, how big, how much racism do you experience? Um, if you compare them late 1990s, early 2000s to today, they, you know, today they say there's much, much more racism. Objectively, I don't know how you find that. I don't know what, what metric you would use other than people's feelings. But, you know, one theory is that, our education establishment and the media just told people that racism is everywhere. It's a big deal. You should be stressed about it. Um, and you know, it's, it's oppressing you all the time. And then people came to, people came to believe it, right. They say it would be a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy if, if that's what happened. 
Well, I would just say that whole communications campaign, in my view, has been a miserable failure, <clears throat> either on its own terms or different ways in which you or I might disagree with it. I just think it's a failure. So, yeah. uh, so, so let me ask you about the um, one more. Th- you know, one thing you said that was interesting was um, your one of your articles is uh, uh, about the question of wokeness. And you are, you know, you're a critic of the woke in some way, but you're also, you have an interesting angle on it. And so you say things, you said something like in your article that, you know, these middle, you know, these Gulf Arab monarchies um, are becoming more woke. Um, And the idea is sort of, there's a spectrum here from like Saudi Arabia to like, uh, you know, the Berkeley campus of UC Berkeley or or something like that, or, 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 you know, the streets of Portland or, or whatever. Um, is that, is that how you sort of see the wokeness issue? Because I don't see it as exactly, you know, like that. I, I see I see wokeness as more, and maybe this is just a way for me to oppose wokeness without supporting, you know, having to support, you know, Saudi social customs um, or whatever. You know, I, I think that the better sort of view is there is an obsession with, um, you know, there's obs- obsession with an equality of, uh, you know, there's an obsession of creating equality of results, a, you know, a blank slatist commitment um, to explaining differences between groups. And I don't see that as on the same sort of spectrum as, say, you know, Saudi Arabian gender segregation. Uh, can you defend sort of thinking about wokeness in, in sort of this, you know, very, very broad spectral terms? Well, I would say look at wokeness as a whole. <clears throat> it has many bad effects, like encouraging people to think about equality of outcomes far too much. And it has a bunch of good effects, like raising people's awareness of, say, gay rights. So in Singapore, they just reaffirmed uh, gay marriage is illegal, and Mm. they also made it very hard to reform that. Uh, People who are woke, whether you want to include that in the definition of woke or just empirically observe, the woke, like almost always, are quite against that. And the woke there are correct. Most of the world should be more woke. So how can you be totally against the woke? Mm-hmm. Now, do I think wokeness has been bad for American campuses? Absolutely. For U.S. politics, I would say complicated. But the good thing about the woke is just they help their opponents more than they help themselves. Kind of if you just take them straight up, it's been bad. That might be good in this roundabout, indirect way. Mm-hmm. But look, the world as a whole, I've, I've been to over 100 countries. Most of them should be more woke. I, I was just back from India, been to Pakistan. Uh, I just don't doubt that. It's hard. It's hard for me to see why that isn't self-evident. Mm-hmm. Have you had? Have you had experience? The bad parts of the package deal. Yes, I would prefer to unbundle the package, but it would still be better if they got more of the package. Hmm. Do you think? Do you? I don't know how much experience you had with sort of a lower class uh, Americans, lower middle class Americans. Would you? Would you apply that? Um, uh, would you apply that analysis to to them too? Do you think they should be more quote unquote uh, woke? Uh, many, you know, my family started off as lower middle class. You could even say lower class. They didn't end up that way by the time I was say 18 or 20. Uh, but that is my background. And if I think of say my sister who is gay and was gay, it was very hard for her to come out. If I think of my high school in the 1970s, the the rate of Gay people in that high school is probably about the same as what the rate would be now, but not one person felt they could come out. That just seems to me extremely wrong. Uh, it has on average been worse in lower middle class culture in this country. And yeah, those people should be more woke. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think? Well, do you think that? I mean, the the you know, uh, the uh, just sort of flag. You said the number of gay people um, are probably the same then as as now. You know, according to surveys, <laughs> you know, not that there, there was a report from CSPI that you, you probably saw that. You know, the number of young yeah. people identifying as gay is you know like five times or something. something a lot of that's just posturing. People who actually want to live, you know, a life where they are primarily gay or bisexual. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. I don't know. But there were plenty of people back then who were gay. This I know. And since then, most of them have come out, and for the better. But at that time, it was not possible to do so. And their lives were made miserable, often for decades. And that was a failing of this country not being woke enough. So I, you know, I am, I tend to take sort of, you know, the, the rationalist view on these things. I'm not a person who says, you know, people, if people are grossed out by something, it should be, uh, it should be banned in most cases, you know, there's just bad cultural practices that, you know, uh, we should, we should get beyond on this question in particular. I, I wonder if there was a kind of Chester, Chesterton's offense kind of thing, because, you know, when people were arguing against gay marriage, um, uh, you know, 20 years ago, they said, you know, it would read the breakdown of society, it would break down, you know, gender roles, it would uh, uh, create confusion. And then if you sort of look at, you know, what's happened, you know, just very soon after gay marriage, it's like call of human history until like, you know, 2010 or so, 11, you know, we, we don't have any, gay, we don't have any gay marriage. And then we have acceptance of gay marriage. And within a decade, we have, you know, skyrocket, you know, skyrocketing rates of um, uh, depression. Um, we have um, concentrated in people who are liberal, people who identify as uh, LGBT. They're not liberal. They're illiberal. But please continue. Well, they well they they're left wing, right? Self identification, self identify yeah. as as left wing, and so you know maybe there was maybe society had some had some wisdom here in, in suppressing something that could easily get out of control and and make every. I understand there's some there's a minority of gay people uh, who want to live their lives as as they see fit, but you know maybe there maybe that was sort of you know sort of suppressing that was the price to pay for sort of this sense of you know, normalcy and for, for encouraging what works, um, for most people, most of the time is, is that, is that a, is that a view you could, uh, you'd be sympathetic to? I don't think that would pass a causal identification test. So legalizing gay marriage causally, it seems to me made marriage somewhat stronger, reaffirmed traditional values and took away some interesting, but probably better left taken away parts of promiscuous male gay culture. Those seem to me the causal effects. Now, I do think what happened is we got a whole bunch of social trends together, like the good side awoke, the bad side awoke, the good side awoke legalized gay marriage, the bad side awoke did a bunch of other bad things, but it wasn't legalizing gay marriage that led to the bad things. That seems to me really extremely unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would not single out the legalizing gay marriage. I I think the, the, the sort of the, um, uh, yeah, I think I think the civil rights law has a huge role to play here, and I always thought that creating new identity groups, I think, is just is just a bad thing. It leads to things like you know government coming in, telling school you can you know. I think that just leads to uh, issues with freedom of association, freedom of speech. Once you go down that path, I think you get a lot of the problems we see today. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't put it all on gay marriage. I would have taken gay marriage as a sort of a you know as a compromise, not to have the um, uh, you know the not to have the anti discrimination laws, which I think are I think are much more. Um, problematic but yeah I, I get your point I, I would I wouldn't put all put it all on gay marriage um, 
Okay. But I wouldn't do any of it on gay marriage is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I, I sort of think you have to, you had to take it as a bundle. If you, if you put me back 15 years ago and you said, um, are you pro or anti-gay marriage? I would have said, you know, I would have, maybe this compromise I would be happy with, but I think there's a bundle coming and I think it's going to be more bad than good. So, you know, it's sort of, it's part of that bundle. It's just the most, it's just sort of the most visible of the issues that, you know, were included in that bundle. I like to work to unpack the bundle. <laughs> the part of the unpacking is to defend the good parts. Yeah. Besides yeah. the bad and gay marriage is one of the good parts. Yeah, got it. So, uh, you know, Tyler, I'm, I'm conscious of your time. I just want, I just wanted to, um, I will ask you before, uh, I let you go, sir, what is the, you know, what are you, um, you know, you ask how ambitious are you to people, you know, what's, what's your sort of, what's the, what's the sort of goal? Uh, what do you see your sort of role in the intellectual, you know, ecosystem and American, you know, uh, intellectual culture more generally? Um, is it, is it just, you're looking for interesting people? Are you trying to sort of push, you know, the, the culture in a way, are you trying to, you know, be an evangelist for, for human? in progress and trying to facilitate it how do you sort of see what you're doing because you know there's there's nobody like you so i'm just interested in how you sort of conceive your role well maybe a, a lot of those things i did write an essay for mercatus once called something like my personal moonshot that you can google to rather easily where i lay it all out i think pretty clearly uh but at one point one angle of it i would stress is i like learning things and i like having fun and i'm pretty selfish <laughs> and i want to be learning things every day and the way my life is structured now, I can do that. So getting back to the senator idea, I'm kind of like an intellectual senator, but I have a very good arrangement, a lot of diversity in the kinds of things I can build or create, a time to read, freedom to write, a number of different outlets, a high degree of freedom of speech, high degree of autonomy, a high ability, I think, to help other people. And I'm pretty happy with that. So just like the narrowly selfish interpretation of this is good for me to do so i'm doing it i think goes a long way it doesn't contradict a bunch of the other things you cited but yeah why shouldn't i do it <laughs> right why do you think more people don't do it because when you're a tenured professor you have so much freedom and it seems to me that most people just do what they what they did before they had they had tenure well, why do you why do you think you're why do you think you're actually unique here I've never fully grasped this. I do think a lot of people lack courage. And Daniel and I talk about this in the book. Courage as an important feature of talent, I think, is grossly underrated. Again, you don't need it for plenty of jobs, but for plenty of jobs you do, and certainly in academia you do. So, like, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Uh, sure. Go ahead. Most people don't ask. That's, a, that's yeah, good, but go ahead. Uh, like, I, I don't think the right way to explain it is I don't give a fuck. Because I sort of do give a fuck. But at the same time, I have some perspective that I want to do the thing I want to do. And like, I actually kind of can succeed in doing it. And I'm just not that fearful about like what they might do back to me <clears throat> is a big part of it. Uh, but I think I have a few unique abilities that make it easier for me to do. And in that sense, like, oh, I don't, I'm not looking down on all the others. Oh, you, you, you bastardly cowards. It's just hard for them to do it. Mm -hmm. And I got lucky, you know, in the genetic lottery and it's uh, easier for me to do it. And that's another big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. The courage thing is so, so interesting because I'm always, I'm amazed by sort of the lack of courage among intellectuals, but then you look at like men generally. And so like something like happens, like Russia invades Ukraine. It, it seems like when there's a war or something, it seems like you can have, you know, a sort of constant stream of men going out 
being willing to risk themselves, uh, engage in you know physically very brave activities. You know, countries all over the world they have drafts. They 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 go die by the millions. You know, there there there's courage. It's it's not it's it's too simple to say. You know, men are men are cowardly. Sure. Uh, but then you're looking for people to say politically incorrect things, and and they're scared. Why that that always drove me crazy. Like why are people why why do men seem more likely to be willing to die? <laughs> uh, you know, people in general. I'm just focusing on men here. Um, than they are to you know say you know say politically incorrect things about race race or gender or whatever issue i i I don't get it it's it's a very odd aspect of humanity don't you think it may be which way the social pressure cuts so there can be a lot of pressure to enlist in particular wars and then you know the courageous thing to do is to not enlist even though fighting may be a higher chance of dying but courage in this sense is subjective Uh, it also amazes me the number of wealthy people who are just afraid and they could really say F you to the world and just go off and live off their money and be more than fine. And uh, people respond to this differently. But it's not always the uh, marginal incentives you might expect. A lot of people get more caught up in the trap the more they have, not less. It's like they earn to be independent, but the more they earn, the less independent they are. And that, that fascinates me as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, likewise. I mean, the the uh, yeah, the idea that it's all just social pressure—that would be a parsimonious explanation of what's going on. You know, people. If people say, you know, don't talk. You know, uh, being uh, having the right attitudes on a college campus and fighting a war, they look very different. One looks like sort of being meek and submiss- submiss- submissive to like you know the collective, and the other one looks like sort of brave and masculine. But they're the same thing. They're just responding to social pressure. And so, if you just assume human beings are social creatures and and highly influenced by uh, uh, by what other people are doing. I guess that that would explain that would explain it all, right? It's all just it's all just. Conform- but it's not. All, here's another factor, and this worries me. It's very hard in contemporary society to help other people a great deal unless you are yourself like politically acceptable. And I think there's a lot of people. They're not cowards. They really want to help others, but for them to continue helping others, they've got to stay on one side of the line. And that's one of the more screwed up things we're doing. If you could be considered like socially out there and unacceptable, but we still would let you help other people, I think we'd have a better discourse, a better society. I know that's hard to pull off, but it seems to me it should entirely be possible. And that's one of those things we need to learn because it's not all just people being cowards. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's self-sacrificial. You're right. So if you have, you're a professor, for example, and you need to write letters of recommendation and help place your your students, you're in a position where your actions don't only harm yourself; they they harm others, right? So that that yeah, or like you're Bill Gates, and now people say all these things about you. Uh, I don't follow those debates, but his ability to help other people is way lower than it had been. Yeah. Do you think that with greater, you know, sort of cultural and political polarization there's um that takes care of it because like you know for example you look at somebody like uh you know peter peter teal um who's you know he could have been he could have just stayed more sort of as a more neutral cultural figure he could have decided that would probably have less influence on politics today than if he did it he's he he sort of put his chips in with you know being more influential on the uh on the political right and you know maybe the overall that gives him more sort of um 
gives him uh, more power. So it is maybe sort of uh, is maybe sort of greater sort of polarization and you know political sort of discord a way to you know create these bubbles in in the sense that like okay this side hates you this is not going to work in academia where it's a monoculture but you know and everything else like this side hates you these other people like you and that sort of creates good incentives for people to maybe go a little bit out there. There's a lot packed into there. Uh, but I would first challenge the view that we're so polarized. I don't think we are. We are in the sense that we hate each other a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of people agreeing how the federal budget should be spent, I'm not sure I've ever seen more agreement in my lifetime, for better or worse. So there's one, we've packed all the polarization into a smaller number of dimensions, is how I would describe it. Yeah. We might be less polarized. Uh, I'm not sure Peter Thiel is politically influential. I mean, I guess we'll see after the Senate races. Um, but I wouldn't take that for granted. I think Peter's doing what he thinks is right. Uh, I, I don't know if it's influential. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, the boomerang effects in politics, just yeah. like the woke, you know, maybe they're just helping elect Republicans. Yeah. Some of that's been undone by, you know, Dobbs and the abortion stuff. But if somehow that were on a different trajectory, clearly the impact of the woke would have been to elect more Republicans. Now it's more up for grabs. Yeah. So, so the, the, uh, you know, maybe we're not, you're right. Maybe we're not polarized. Yeah. It's funny how little debate there are in these budgetary matters compared to the Tea Party, you know, uh, 12 years ago, where there seemed to be some actual intellectual difference there. Um, but the effective polarization, so, but political scientists, they talk about effective polarization, just how much yeah. you, know, you hate other people. And that's clearly up. And, but that, but that can have the effect that I'm, I'm talking about, right? Because if, you know, if I'm canceled by group X, then group Y, you know, might might be more favorably inclined to me, and therefore I have more, you know, sort of room to influence group Y. At least I'm not a non-person, right? It's hard. To, I think it's getting harder to have a complete, outside of academia, a complete societal cancellation. Like there's people on the far right and the far left um, who I think are more, you know, influential than they could be. The most sort of outer edges, uh, just because there's so much polarization. Like, okay, if the New York Times writes a hit piece on Mr. X, even if Mr. X is, is pretty bad, we don't want to do what the New York Times says. So we, you know, so we, so we uh, accept that person. I feel like that gives people sort of more room to maybe it brings in some odious figures to the public debate, but also um, gives other people just sort of more room to to say what they think. But even that phrase "odious figures," I, I made uncomfortable by like. Okay, you can cite Hitler. Hitler's odious. Uh, I think we make ourselves stupider. Like I, I like to ask this question: Does this person favor price controls on prescription drugs? Well, they might. They might not. To me, that's like a terrible view that will kill many thousands of people, yeah, maybe yeah. more. But I don't think of those people as odious. I think they're wrong about something. And I, ask, if someone's called odious, I'll just ask myself. Well, are their views worse than the views of someone who wants price controls on prescription <laughs> drugs? Yeah. Well, like, who's odious? I know there's the Hitler thing and Godwin's law. Uh, but we got to, like, mostly move past that and just focus on, like, the ideas and being more analytical, I think. Yeah, I think that. I think that's I think that's right. I was just sort of, I, I was sort of using the term just sort of. Oh, like, I know. I'm not blaming you if. If anything, you react against this. I, I, I get your role in this debate. Yeah, exactly. Do what do you think? Uh, just uh, I guess I'll ask one last question. What do you What do you think in that context about social media censorship? Do you Do you see it as a big problem? Because it seems that seems to be sort of the way that some of these people get excluded from society. No, I don't. Uh, keep in mind, I grew up in a world where there were three network television channels, and then PBS, and there was radio. A transistor radio was a new thing. That was kind of like the internet. 
so do I think some people have been kicked off who shouldn't have been kicked off? I do think that. But relative to the gains, it's such a small amount that's been coughed back up. Uh, oh, I agree. I'm not, I'm not asking margin, about yeah, fewer not, people kicked off. Yeah, I'm not asking about how much free speech, you know, how much, uh, you know, diversity of opinions we see compared to the 1970s or 80s. I just say, you know, as a sort of as, as a as a uh, compared to what it could be is how, how big of an issue do you see sort of social media uh, censorship and sort of shaping, you know, our political environment and, and contributing to this stuff and, you know, just making sort of like some ideas uh, uh, off limits. You know, I'm still a libertarian on this issue. I run a blog. If someone put up a comment that was like anti-vax in like a stupid way, I would just delete it. If Twitter, Facebook, Meta now want to do that, you know, I say great. Now, I, I agree they've made some mistakes, but I think it's within their right. I think often it's a good thing they do it. And uh, wonderful. Their property. <laughs> you don't yeah. like it, go somewhere else. Yeah, that's a yeah. I I have a blog too, and yeah, I, I also censor comments. So I guess I'm I'm in no place to no place to speak. I, I guess that's that's the case for libertarianism. It's always like my freedom to do X is almost more, more important than taking away someone else's freedom. If you told me a trade where Twitter would um, not be allowed to censor, and uh, I wouldn't be allowed to I, actually, I would take it. I would I would <laughs> I would let my blogs go bad. But I, I get I get the I get the point that we are all sort of uh, you know we all we all sort of curate um, when we have the opportunity to do so. Uh, so Tyler, is there anything you, um, do, do you have any projects, uh, coming up now? You just finished this book. Is there another book in the pipeline or anything else you want to talk about? Well, expanding emergent ventures is taking a lot of my time. Uh, I'm working with Shruti Rajagopalan, uh, to build out emergent ventures, India. That's really her project. Uh, but I can be of help in some ways. I have a long-term project to be writing a book on my views on the history of economic thought. But I also would like to write a sequel book to the one I just published with Daniel. So all this goes on at once, and uh, sooner or later, it's all going to happen. What's what's the sequel going to be? Uh, what's what's the difference going to be between that and the original? You know, I think we we need more good ideas first, and the sequel comes out of the ideas rather than being planned top down. But the natural sequel would be to extend the last chapter on how to motivate talent, how to retain it, how to develop it, and not just how to find it. So that's the most likely sequel. But again, if, you, if the ideas evolve in some other direction, so be it. Gotcha. Well, Tyler, it's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, thank you for joining us. Great. Great.